Ladies and gentlemen. Whoa. <laughs> it's Mike and Sevi and Sethi and Tim. Seven. Yep. And we are Voxology Podcast. Yep. And guess what? What? People can see our faces now if they go to YouTube. We are on YouTube, Seth. Seth, here. you oh, are on YouTube right now. You are on what? YouTube right now. What? On YouTube right now? Yes. Holy crap. <laughs> Holy crap. Seth Erie. <laughs> Seth Erie. That is not the form of acclamation we have instructed you on. That was a great on. response. Come on. First of all, it is. And you can't laugh at him like you are, Tim. I'm so sorry. You just took me off guard. Now. <laughs> Yeah, it did me too. That's pretty crazy. How about how about gee, that's nice, guys. How about say that? Uh, oh, oh, and there's Mama Bear. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's got Mama Bear. Yeah, Mama Bear's there too, which is great because YouTube gets everything. But for those of you not <laughs> YouTubing, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Voxology Podcast. We are so delighted that you are with yeah, us. Yes. Yep, we've had a couple of days of uh, ice, so Seth yes. has been home for a couple of days. Yes. Yes, and we are recording actually in the evening. We usually are in the afternoon, and so um, it's dark. I have a very murky vibe going in my house right now. Uh, Tim does too, actually, yeah, but less down, murky. Here's what's great, though. So in the interview that we're going to introduce in a second, Tim kind of does half his face like this at some points, and it totally looks like the girl from Blair Witch Project. <laughs> So I had Blair Witch Project vibes. I should go when stand you were in just the back half, corner. You were just kind of half your face <laughs> like this. And I was like, I could imagine a tear saying, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Um, Seth Erie, how are you? I'm good. Fantastic. Do you want to, besides what you said before, do you want to say anything new um, to our sweet audience? Um, sweet audience. Um, sweet audience. It's, my, my day's good. Your day was good? My day, my day school is good. It was good today, huh? Yeah, I have lunch with Seth today. He, had, he has a best buddy, Seth, he had and lunch with? My son, Nicholas, is big trouble right now. My son, Nicholas, who's his friend, Nicholas. Is Nicholas is in big trouble right now? Yes. Uh -oh. I got hurt. Oh, you got hurt? Yes. Oh. We're not sure if that happens, because he reports this quite a bit. It may have happened once, and the echoes are still reverberating, or it may have happened oh, today. The mic, who is to pick out? Who, do you want to do a big shout-out? Who is to serve the mic and the server? Okay. We, okay. Okay, ready? Do your shout-outs. I go first. Okay, go ahead. Thank you, okay? Okay, yeah. I big, a big shout-out to A.T. Bear. Big shout out to Andy Bear way back oh, wow. in the day. Yes. I'm going to do a big shout out to Brenda, Brenda. who uh, do, does all of our website stuff. And she's just been amazing, an amazing friend of ours. Tim, who do you shout out right now? I'm going to shout out our buddy Gombus. What's up, Gombus? Yeah, Gombus. Yeah. So there you go, Seffi. Yeah. That was some shout outs. Good yes. crew. All right. All right, we've, we're going to shout out a new friend today. Before we get to uh -oh. the interview that we have, uh oh, we got some uh -oh. business to cover. We got some business with a Z. Uh, Biz. Z. Yes. So, first of all, big announcement. And Tim, can you put this in the show notes as well? Maybe. If you are a patron or tithely supporter of the podcast, we are doing um, an exclusive. Patreon or Tithely audience exclusive <laughs> in Orange County exclusively. No, Tim and I are coming down to Orange County uh, February 24th um, in the year of our Lord, 2023. 
And if you are a, uh, Patri- a Patreon supporter, a Tidely supporter, and you are in Orange mm. County or will be, would you, and you're interested, this is going to be a Friday night. We're doing it either in a home or an event center, depending on how many people show up. This is a night of appetizers and drinks and conversation, um, getting to know each other, getting to know the community. If you are interested, I need you to send me your email address at hello at voxpodcast.com and, um, and just send us your email address and say that you're coming because we need to count for all sorts of uh, dinner and seating and whether we'll oh, host oh, yes, it in a yes, yes. house or somewhere else. So if you are interested in that, please, would you email us? Um, for those of you who are not Patreon supporters, we will do, we are, we have other things in the works. This is just an appreciation dinner for some folks who have been super, super generous to us over the seven years we've been in existence. And this is just a way to say thank you. Um, so February 24th, email us hello at Vox podcast or, or do they do Voxology podcast? Is it's it Vox both? still. It's Vox still. Um, sure. Yeah. We, we, yeah, because you can't, we can't stray too far from our roots. The second thing before we get to our interview is, uh, got permission to read a critique. Now this critique is about as gentle and generous as you can imagine a critique being. So, so all of this, um, this is a template for critiquing. So I just want to applaud the critiquer. I ask permission to read it. And then Tim and I will defensively and aggressively respond. No, not at all. Hey, guys, love your thoughts and rants and theological biblical meanderings. I am a fan. But, but. And, then, and then it's like a capital B-U-T, but. But. I got bad. Thank you, Seth. I got bad vibes from the Left Behind Revelation show. Oh. I resonate with your feelings, but guys, come on, exclamation point. It was kind of hostile, exclamation point. Not cool. I'm no longer a dispensationalist and haven't been for nearly 20 years. The only reason I ever was is the same reason most, quote, normal people ever are. They just don't know better. (coughs) Dispensationalism is likely all that got peddled in their unfortunately anemic marketplace of theological ideas. Just maybe think about what kinds of people those are and what kind of thoughts and hashtag feels they have about dispensationalism. Probably is more than just ideas and a framework for them. They have friends and family they love and pastors they submit to that believe this crap. Uh, As messed up as it is, it isn't a cult. It does require some thoughtfulness and patience and intention when navigating relationships in which dispensationalism become a bedfellow. Now, maybe wonder if these kinds of people I'm describing maybe ever find their way into your audience. I'm sure, I sure don't want my dispensationalist brother listening to your podcast and copying your rant at our Thanksgiving dinner. Aunts and uncles would choke on their dentures, man. Maybe this all falls on deaf ears because you don't have new listeners that don't already understand all their S-word theological baggage and understand that. Please don't take this as a complaint. I personally was not offended and feel the same, but you talked about how dispensationalism has tossed certain, has fostered certain kinds of elitism. And while that is undoubtedly true, I smell the touch of elitism coming through my AirPods as you all were <laughs> assessing it. 
Yeah, maybe you all don't have freshly dis recovering dispensationalists in your audience. Maybe if you do, you don't give an S word about what their relationship with it is. I personally wasn't offended, but I thought it'd register some concern. So do that with, uh, do with that as you will. I'm not PO'd or offended. As weird as this may seem, consider this fan mail. You probably feel tons of hate mail every week, but, and I understand your, uh, and feel your frustration with this theological view. Enough said, with love. And then he put his name. <laughs> so, first of all, there was gentleness and kindness. Second of all, there was a ruthless examination of the concern. We were critiquing elitism. We embodied elitism. Um, would you want your, would this be a kind introduction to uh, deconstructing that belief if people were, you know, your aunt or brother or whatever, all of that's, all of that's super legit. Yeah. Absolutely. So that's we've, what I wanted to read. We've fielded that critique say. before that we can be, you know, that sometimes the people that need to hear the topics the most might not want to listen because we can sound yeah. condescending <clears throat> or aggressive towards something. Yep. And I, I, I receive that and understand Ooh. that. Well, Tim, you are by far the most guilty I realize that. that. I'm I mean, the one that gets all the hate mail. Yeah, it's it's really staggering, actually. No, I'm kidding about all of that entirely. <laughs> Seth Theory, let's not rub my eye while we're recording. But I appreciate people, I appreciate people the, are finally getting the full spectrum of what, I love yeah, seriously. If you go to YouTube, you'll see all of the shenanigans that are happening right now. Maybe that maybe that is the best way to increase YouTube YouTube um yeah. viewers. It's just sticking Seth on. What? Right? What? Yes, the Seth cast. Oh, it's Seth, Seth cast. Yeah. Yes, we need a Seth podcast, uh, don't we? Oh yeah, with the black iPad, do it. With the black iPad, we could do it. Oh yeah. Oh, that'd oh, yeah. be very exciting. Oh yeah, please, it sends me more, more, and more. Hey, Send Seth, you more, more, and more. Seth, yes. did you did you let the pigeon drive the bus? Um. Oh yes. Hey, do hey guys. Do not submit the bus. Do not let the pigeon drive the bus, guys. No. I've told you this before. <laughs> don't let him do it. Now, if you have no idea what we're, we're talking about, here. you don't have children. You don't have children. If you have children, you know about Mo Williams. Willems. Thank you, Justy Bear. <laughs> don't let the pigeon drive the bus. It does. This is right, a no, nom. There are rules here. Yes. yes. Oh, yes, exactly. Yeah, we uh, we've read that story a few times. Now. Back to our uh, dear critiquer. Um, I, I, the reason I made the joke about Tim is because I am much more likely the guilty party in this. And we have received this critique before, and we never want to hear it. The goal isn't forever for us uh, to come across as arrogant or condescending ever. Yeah. I know I have that in me, so I appreciate hearing when it, <coughs> when it comes out. Part of... Um, a part of my hope, <coughs> Seth, you gotta quit vaping. I've told oh, you, son. Why? Um, part of my hope <laughs> is that we are able to attack views and not people. Yes. And um, and so yes, I am deeply um, uh, concerned. Isn't a strong enough word? Uh, PO'd, perhaps. Um, I, I don't know the right word to choose. I am exercised about the damage that some of these views yes. have caused in the American evangelical church. I'm not at all exercised by people who believe them because I myself, I mean, I grew up right. in this environment. This was, this was the view of my 
seminary. Right. And um, and so I, I get it. I'm not upset with that people hold this view, but I think the view and the purveyors of the view, um, not the TV show, but of this view. Um, it's all Whoopi. It's all Whoopi's fault. Yeah. Whoopi. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just I'm not a big fan. So we'll I want to walk the line between being humble and curious about people. I had also ideas uh, because um, there's always still something more to learn. But this is stuff I've been sitting in for 30 years. Yeah. And I've just seen I've seen the bad fruit of this. Now, that doesn't mean I have to express it in a jerk like way. So for right. that, I repent forever absolutely it's hard it's hard you can't like for some people their beliefs and their ideologies are they're like they are intimately tied to them and so it becomes even sometimes attacking an idea or you know something like dispensationalism people who have found that to be an absolute truth for themselves can feel attacked even when you're not even when it's not personal or attacking a person people can feel that so that's yeah. always a hard line to walk yeah and i have a hard time um not just like cutting straight out something so anyways it's no. always helpful to take a breath yeah totally <laughs> so thank you thank you thank you thank you i i i and we receive that and i will do a better job can't speak for tim because you know yes he's that he's was me case. that was me trying so <laughs> yeah. I don't know. We'll see what happens. That next. was yeah. That was us holding back. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was like, dang, I no, thought we did man. that really well. Yeah. No, I just I don't know that I can always constrain mm. that energy. Right. But I I never want to direct it at people. Um. I just think I think like that's a women in posture. Well, if we can hold it, yeah. yeah. If we can hold to it. So so, but we wanted to read the critique because uh, odds are there there are some of you who agreed and didn't write in. And we just want to say, yeah, we hear that. And we're always open, man, to critique. Absolutely. Um, we don't get a lot of hate mail. We really don't. We get a lot of encouragement. And um, we of used questions. to. We used to. We get a ton of questions and those sorts of things. But no, we don't get. We get a fair amount of critiques. But um, just like yourself, most people are really great about how they do it and what they say. And sometimes... Um, we think maybe it was just an individual thing, but this is something we've heard before. So we wanted to just read it and respond. Now, tonight. Tonight. Today. Well, we're recording tonight. But yes, whenever it is you're listening morning. to this, um, we have kind of a, uh, man, a really interesting conversation. So we, uh, Tim and I refer to our mutual friend, Kevin, a lot. Kevin has been a dear friend of ours for years and years and years, and has been central to um, the podcast in so many behind the scenes way. But he introduced us to a friend of his named Nick, who um, founded and is the CEO of something called the Institute for American Policing Reform. And, um, and, and Nick uh, is, uh, we spent an hour and could have spent several hours right talking with him yeah. about this yeah it feels like we He's scratched former... the surface of like quite a bit more oh totally he is he is he was in law enforcement i think for over 20 years he was in the military he has been on the receiving end of uh and witnessed uh some very nefarious actions by police towards he and other 
black um, men Fly. and black people. And so he, he comes at this with a great, great deal of credibility. And it's a super interesting and, and sort of tension-filled topic for me. My dad was a police officer in um, a city of about 50,000 in Ohio. And uh, so I grew up, you know, with very positive views of law enforcement. Uh, and that's white, that's kind of white privilege in some ways. Um, I also was a chaplain, I've talked about just a little bit, a chaplain um, for a police department in California. And I learned so much there. Um, so much that was that was good and so much that was bad, but I, I really saw like some really heinous, really heinous stuff. Um, and um, and got a little glimpse behind um, sort of the the culture that Nick's gonna gonna talk about, and he doesn't need my, me in any way, shape, or form to validate the culture he identifies, but but I do. Um, and there is there is just a bit in my own experience. There is something very much to what he's saying. Yeah. So. We're going to take an hour to be with him and listen to him, and then he's going to give some very specific asks. and And we don't, we don't ever fundraise. Um, I mean, obviously, we we're crowd supported, and so we we invite people to donate to our nonprofit, but we don't fundraise on behalf of others. But I think in this instance, this is a this is a very good exception, sort of to that rule. Um, yeah, they're doing it, the hard listen, work that feels like an insurmountable. Yes topic or you know so this is any way that we can support or direct or bring attention to i think is going to be super helpful and 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 for tim and i i mean and and most of you um we've never had to be in, in fear yeah uh around policing we've never had to have the talk with our children about you know here's how you behave and and so for me, I feel just totally stuck watching the video of, of Tyree Nichols getting beat to death. And I don't know what to do with that anger and sadness and grief and frustration at people that don't seem to get it. What? Um, and so what Nick does is he really provides uh, a way for those of us who are like Tim and I to uh, at least do something yeah. positively. Yeah. Um, so anyway, we, we hope you enjoy what the interview. Is... It raises all sorts of other questions and not everyone's going to agree with his approach. And that's fantastic. That's, I mean, at our best in our community, we're humbly curious about yeah. conversations around things that aren't normally given permission to have. And so this is one of those where, you know, talking about American policing and oof, there's just a whole lot there. So we just... We uh, are so grateful to have somebody so credible, so credible yeah. to talk about this issue because we haven't talked about it before because neither Tim nor I have any credibility. Well, we, yeah, we, every time there's something like this happens, we spend time lamenting and talking about, you know, hu humanity and exalting humanity and caring for one another. But those are always reactionary emotions, reactionary thoughts. And, you know, mm -hmm. the stuff that Nick's yes. doing is very much like, how can we get to the roots of these things? And again, which just seems like a completely just a massive, massive yeah. undertaking that I am like, you know, in awe and have so much respect for. 
and wouldn't yeah. even know where to begin. So totally. it's okay. good stuff. Good guy doing good work. Yep. So we're just so honored to have him on. And um, and so, yeah, thank you. Man, the, Appreciate- the idea of the gospel stuff, like when he was talking about just seeing humans for humans and like seeing, yeah. I was like, that is like, you just hear that reverberated throughout. Yep. Just simply that, like, you know, did you see you, did you feed this person? Did you, you know, clothe this, like all that's just like, man, you just see it. You see this tangible effort of elevating humanity in all mm-hmm. situations. And I don't know. I was very, I was very inspired. Yeah. Yep. Good stuff. All right. Well, enjoy friends. We appreciate you guys. Bye. Smash that subscribe button. Hit the subscribe button. Forget guys who I it. Hit the subscribe. Hold the subscribe button. And see ya. We're at, at, and do it. Fox. I will see Packers. Wow. Hey, everybody. We are so delighted to have with us uh, a friend of a friend. Our mutual friend has introduced us to one of his friends. So he is now our friend. Uh, his name is Nick Sensley. It's a circle he of runs friends. The- it, it, dude, and friends are friends forever. Uh-huh. If the Lord is the Lord of them, <laughs> absolutely. And he is, um, Nick is the CEO for the Institute for American Policing Reform. And um, man, we could not be, that could not be a more timely uh, and heartbreaking conversation. We're recording this um, the week after the videos came out uh, around uh, the brutal murder of Tyree and, um, and, and Nick has been so gracious to give us a bit of his time as, as we talk a bit about this. Um, if you want to tune into our YouTube page, uh, I would highly recommend that. Nick, um, and really my first question is, have you struggled with being good looking your whole <laughs> life or is this something that's happened later? <laughs> Uh, in life, because I'm I'm hoping it turns around for me. Well, well, well uh, thank you, Kevin. If there's truth to what you're what you're seeing, then if there is hope, then because <laughs> I I don't know nice, where it comes from, nice. except for genes. If there's any truth to it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Listen, thank you, thank you so much. We, let's just uh, can we start just by talking about you, and um, where were you where were you born and raised? Did you have um, did you have much experience uh, with law enforcement when you were a, where you were a kid? Was that positive or negative? I, I'd, I'd love to give folks some context for um, the vision that you have uh, for this before we dive into the specifics. Well, thanks for having me, Kevin and Tim. This is a really special time to have an opportunity to get out and uh, speak publicly about the Institute and where we're going and talking to these contemporary issues around policing, around American policing, this very powerful authority, one of the most, you know, entrenched institutions in American society. And and it's an essential uh, service that we all want and and need, but we all want to see it and it be better. As for my background, I mean, I'm the youngest of eight. I was born in the 
desire housing projects of New Orleans. Uh, in 1957, when this housing project, which was built on top of a landfill, was built, the day oh. it opened, it was declared unfit to live in. So that gives you an wow. idea of, you know, poor blacks and white that were ushered into uh, that uh, community life and what generally comes uh, out of that. And so it, in terms of my experience with police, unfortunately, it started with a very negative first and lifelong uh, impression. Um, when I was mm. four years old, back in 1965, I stood as a child on the sidewalk looking across to a grassy knoll, which back in New Orleans we called a neutral ground, because it was usually about 10 yards wide and we'd get out and play football. It was just the, it was the divider in between the directions of the highway. But it was also a rallying place for the police to come and very often lay out the black teenagers face down on that neutral ground and have the German shepherds walk and nip at their heels and intimidate them and walk around uh, their heads. And mm. I, as a child, stood watching that. And I'll tell you, Kevin, about four years ago, it's, it's been about four years now, that impression had been so clear and so such a perfect image of detail in my mind that I went back to what remains of the Desire Housing Projects just to see, just to look for one particular thing, just to see if I could validate this memory that was so clear. And that was a depression mm -hmm. in the neutral ground where the police officers had these teenage uh, black uh, teenagers and young men lined up. And I have to tell you, I had to take a picture of it because, and I now use it in my presentations, because it was perfectly, perfectly preserved mm. as I had uh, memorized it from four years old. And so... That, that's how old you were when you, when you that saw was, that? You were four years four. old at the time. And, um, oh my goodness. And so to, you know, to go back you know, 57 years now and uh, have held that, you know, it's, it's an incident of trauma, right? And so we all have our individual, our oh. collect, you know, our family level, our community level, our region or nation levels of collective trauma. But in terms of my individual yeah. trauma, which certainly is shared among the teenagers who were laid out there by the police, that's probably a lifelong experience. And it certainly was for me as a child. So that was my first oh, experience. Man. I did have other experiences and stories to be told of um, contact uh, oh. by the police. Um, growing up in the 60s in, in the South, in New Orleans, um, you know, it was nothing to be called, you know, the you little in boy, come over here and, you know, and get shut down. You know, I can use the terminology now because having spent 25 years in California law enforcement myself and California policing myself, um, you know, I, I knew uh, all of the ills of what I had experienced in each of the numerous experiences mm. with 
of the police and all of them I must say were are quite vividly held I can remember one time being picked up with a group of friends because the police officers accused us of stealing the bicycles we were riding and they were put us in the back of the car to take us over to the home of the family of the children and it's funny the things you can remember but I can remember the look on the mother's face as she's walking toward the police car and it was this look as toward the police officer like what are you doing i mean even she was yeah. just shocked yeah. and i don't know if it was shocked because she's going you're bringing people who are maybe thieves to my home or it was because yeah this is just atrocious but when in my memory of her saying oh, these are not the kids why do you have them? I think it was more oriented toward her going, why have you done this with these kids? And, mm. you know, the story gets bigger in terms of how it ended and what they did with us. But my point is Jeez. those memories, they last and they do last a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Nick, uh, first of all, as much as I enjoy having you call me Kevin, because that is a compliment. I'm Mike, and I put Kevin's friend down. <laughs> Mike, I'm sorry. To experience credentials. I, I, I look at his no, no, no. First of all, I've been called. I've been called. I've been called worse. Um, sorry, brother. I've been called Karen. And so, no, 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 no. no. I'll take Kevin all day, but I didn't. No, no, that's all right. I called you Neil in a text. In a text to Kevin, I said, "Hey, we're going to interview Neil." He's like, "You should interview Nick too." So it's totally mutual. But, uh, how I mean, so so my dad was a police officer and I've been a, a chaplain in a, a police agency in California. And uh, so I was raised in all of this, but I never, ever in anything in my lived experience saw or experienced anything like that. How did you consider a career in law enforcement after some of those early and brutal memories i wish i could say it was something i grew up wanting to do <laughs> it wasn't um out of getting yeah, I, i'm not surprised <laughs> after getting out of the I'm army I, I went oh, to work goodness. in an architecture firm in, in la and um mm. you know after the the firm went through some changes um, i needed a job and I went to work on campus at the UCLA uh, campus uh, police, which is where my uh, mm. policing career started. And honestly, I I loved it. I, I enjoyed the uh, camaraderie. I enjoyed the intensity of, of the work. It is mm. a different culture, which is very important part mm. of our concerns for today. And yeah. you learn to live in it. You learn to enjoy it. You enjoy mm -hmm. the brotherhood, the sisterhood. That's a part of it. So there's, I can't pretend that that wasn't a part of my experience as much as I'm speaking into where some of the harms exist in that and how police uh, yeah. behave. But I also saw mm -hmm. some pretty awful things um, during uh, the time. And mm. Lots of reflections of the very negative aspects of that culture, which is very grounded in authoritarianism. And mm -hmm. when you have a group of people who have 
the power from the ability to take away a person's liberties to take away their life that is an immense amount of power and to not recognize the impact the influence that that has on building essentially a subculture well that's just plain ignorance and foolishness to not recognize that that's possible i mean i served in the army for a number of years and there was the same type of camaraderie i mean every that's what i was going to ask you know, yeah, when I yeah. Was, did it echo were there echoes in both oh, absolutely in both I mean, professions because yeah. it, the, the, you live together you work together you train together you learn to support and to back up each other and you learn that each other's lives or your lives are interdependent, you know. Um, you know, when they, on television, when they had those during the peak of the uh, the wars overseas in the Middle East, and they'd have all of those uh, soldiers coming home and surprising their kids and families. Gosh, those things just tore me up, man. I mean, I would just be in tears <laughs> just because, you know, just a, sort of a sense of connection uh, to that. When a police officer dies or it's, yeah injured it brings out the same emotions um but yeah. but at the same time it makes me no less fervent and steadfast about bringing about significant changes in the culture of american policing were you conflicted while you were while you were um engaged in law enforcement were there certain circumstances or cultural values that you felt like they were really at odds with where you were and what you'd experienced? Oh, yes. I mean, there were instances where, I mean, honestly, right from the beginning of, of my first time in my field training program, I remember a particular mm -hmm. incident where I was standing, checking out the vehicles we typically do, and a black man in a Porsche drove past us, and my training officer said to me, hurry up, get in a car, we got to go stop him, there's no way he should be driving that car. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, and so... Oh, you know, I get into an argument yeah. with my training officer right in the parking lot of the, you know, <clears throat> the park. Yeah. But that's oh, just a goodness. smaller example of a lot of, yeah. you know, behaviors that I knew were, you know, you know, racially motivated or based upon socioeconomic status. You know, it's sort of that mindset of because he's poor, black or Hispanic, they don't belong. Right. Uh, that they yeah. shouldn't be in yeah. a certain neighborhood, they have, shouldn't have certain possessions, things like that, were in many ways um, just part of the behaviors. And the, the way that we distinguish those from appropriate behaviors that, uh, and we identify them as being attached to a culture, I say we have sort of mm. a simple mm. Socratic test, I call it. So uh, take, for example, the Hispanic kid that walks through a rich, quote, white neighborhood. And yeah. the 
call comes through to the police department, hey, that's this strange kid in the neighborhood, want to send somebody over to check check him out, see what's going on. Now, if the police department just sends on that request, that in itself is problematic, right? Um, mm-hmm. Because you have to ask yourself, okay, well, why should we come check him out? Well, because he doesn't yeah, What's here. he doing? Well, yeah. what's he doing? Well, he's just walking through uh, the neighborhood, okay? And what's wrong with that? Well, he doesn't live here, okay? And what's wrong with that? And, you know, you go on with the why and why and why. And so, in one, on one hand, that points to the broader problem of reform. It's not just a policing reform issue. It is impossible to reform police without addressing the societal issues that exist, particularly in areas of racism and biases and the things that, mm. because, you know, you don't have a police officer on every corner of every neighborhood. So let's change right. that scenario just a little bit and say a police officer drives through the neighborhood without being called and decide, oh, mm-hmm. I don't like the way this look. I want to check this guy out. Doesn't seem like he belongs in this neighborhood. And so the question then is, well, why? <laughs> Well, mm-hmm. you know, we mm-hmm. we've had crime problems, and you know, he doesn't look like he belongs in this neighborhood. Well, why? Uh, and, and you go on and on, and eventually the whys break you down to a place where the only real answer is, well, that's just the way it is. And yeah. that being just the yeah. way it is, really points to a cultural mindset rather than a reality. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's one of the things I really uh, have enjoyed in doing some background is that you see this as a cultural uh, issue. There is a culture um, that policing embodies, inhabits, promotes that is at issue. Um, what, what, if I can ask, what was this week like for you? When that last week uh, on Friday, the video came out, we have five um black officers from a a designated and specific unit and the videos are just horrific i I couldn't even make it through all the way what was that you know i i think that for folks like uh, myself and tim who are white who have never had a lived experience of that kind of terror who never had to have the conversation with our kids that said okay if you get pulled over Here's what you've got to do. Um, we're, we feel absolute horror at this, but we don't see defunding the police and eliminating police altogether as an answer. Uh, and that's one of the things that you say that, man, I love is police are essential and so is reform. Could you talk just a little bit about what you, how you hold those two things together? Uh, because again, you see that video and people are just crying out, listen, it's the, the police are the problem. We need to get rid of them altogether. And you're saying, no, there's a culture here that needs to be examined. So I'd love to love to hear your thoughts a little bit on what it was like to see that, that video. And then how does that lead you to, to still believe that policing is essential? Um, at the same time, you know, calling for the reform that we all know is needed. Well, Mike, I tell you, uh, we stand by police are essential, so is reform. More than just being a motto, we see it as a value position. 
policing and police are absolutely essential. And I want to make it really clear that I believe that the men and women who serve in that role are serving in an essential, valuable, needed, and treasured capacity. We cannot eliminate policing. Our society can barely go a day, a moment, a minute without proving that to be true. But the reform is equally as essential because we need to elevate that role to the position that it deserves to be in with the appropriate approbation, the approval, the trust of the people, because they believe that these peace officers, the way that we prefer to think of right. them, uh, really deserve to hold that immense amount of authority that they have. So mm. in seeing this video, you know, it's, it's heart wrenching, right? It's just, it just tears at, you know, every fabric of our, our attachment to human dignity, right? And the regard yeah. for human life, for this being, which we like to believe is a being created uh, to, to be and to exist in this world. Yeah. From the cultural perspective, we could not have received a more explicit and validating point that this is a culture problem mm. because race is in fact still a part of the picture we cannot take mm. away the fact that a black man without any apparent probable cause was stopped so in the policing vernacular, he was guilty of driving while black. Mm. The police department, the Memphis Police Department has said they have no apparent understanding of what was the probable cause to stop and detain this individual. Not only did they stop and detain him apparently unlawfully, but they went right at him, right at him. Mm -hmm. You know, very aggressively and unlawfully. And so let me let me let me give a, a definition the IAPR the Institute for American Police Reform definition of police culture because this is part of what I believe is missing in the landscape of discussions everybody's saying we need to change police culture but you know changing culture is extremely hard but we believe it can be done but man, let's try to understand what we're really talking about so that we can approach it with the heavy lift approach, a very strategic investment in changing this problem. So we believe that policing yeah. culture is reflected in the enforcement officers' behaviors, attitudes, and customs, right? So in American policing, Culture is, is rooted in a very unique authority that grants immense powers that range from limiting freedoms to yeah. using deadly force. So it's this, it's this authority that propels a very 
powerful, very powerful group bonding. Remember, I talked about that, that bonding that occurs. Yep. But I got to tell you, yep. in police work, I, I really believe is significantly stronger than even in the Army. Right. Because mm. these are the folks that have that day to day immediate authority to seize upon freedoms and life. That's mm. that's a powerful scope of authority. So with these, yeah, this powerful group bonding really throughout American systems of policing, right? Police, one yep, state yep. will regard a police and you probably with your dad when you went somewhere, he told another police officer, he was a police officer, you could, you can automatically see the barriers Absolutely. go down and the camaraderie step in. I have traveled all Absolutely. over the world. I've been in over 40 countries. And everywhere I've mentioned that I was a police officer, immediately walls go down and yep. uh, relationship yep. and bonding steps in. So in American system of policing, yep. which is unique from many others, for sure, uh, you know, the shared attitudes and practices and customs and the basic underlying, underlying assumption, right? So I described the basic underlying assumption to you before. If he's black or Hispanic and he's in a rich, white neighborhood he must be doing something wrong or being there for the wrong reason yeah. that's what's called a basic underlying assumption right and okay. so yep. these basic underlying assumptions of these very high authority public officials tend to form these intangible and very powerful operating principles that essentially yeah. represent core values and they're not spoken no. usually. Well, it's even when those values yeah. are, and usually when those values are unwritten and only understood as just the way it is. Why? Well, that's ah, just the way that's it so is. good. Yeah. So the just the way it is culture of American policing is what is what you're really going after in the heart of your work. Very much so. Would you would you say that's, that's a fair statement? That's very true. Yeah. Good way to put it because it's the just the way it is that is reflected in this atrocious behavior that we saw with Tyree Nichols. Yeah. I mean, listen to the language yeah. they use. Listen to the attitude. You know, I tend to look at <clears throat> this with a very forensic type looking to what I'm seeing, right? So, I'm for gonna, instance, I give yeah. example of at the vehicle, when they're still struggling with at the vehicle, they have one of his hands behind his back and they are yelling, give me your hand, give me your hand. Well, his other hand, which was free, was lifted up to the police officer. You can see a hand come down from the police officer and then retracts. And so I'm asking myself, why didn't you take the hand that was given to you? Right, and so there, mm. there I don't want to get into analyzing that particular tape, but it just gets my yeah. blood boiling, right? Because. I have had oh. fights with individuals bigger than Tyree Nichols, and I took them into custody by myself. You know, I'm a big guy. I'm 6'4", 220 pounds. I definitely had my peak when I was uh, in, in law in policing. <laughs> but, hey, come on, this were five big old dudes. You can't tell me why they can't take this individual into custody. I, I'm sorry. Yeah. And, and why did yeah. why did he run? Why was he afraid? Because one of the things that bothers me, it, it just, it 
really tears at me of the people who said, well, why didn't he just cooperate with the police? Why didn't he just go along right. with, with the game? Okay, well, if you're afraid that somebody's about to kill you, why don't you just lay there and let him do it? Right? Oh, yeah. I mean, when, yeah. I mean, and so that really gets me riled up because if when we look at this and we see someone coming upon this innocent man, pulling him out of his car unjustifiably, and mm -hmm. what do you think is going through his mind? These guys are about to beat the crap out of me or kill me. Listen, yeah, yeah. you know, one of the things I didn't like, and I really don't like the terminology, but has been out there is still called white privilege. Now, listen, hmm. there are white privileges. That's a fact. But I, I don't necessarily yeah. agree with the way that it's always described. But here is a white privilege that I will describe to you. Most white fathers have the privilege of not having to tell their sons, when you get pulled over by the police, this is what you need to do, and literally have to drill that into your son's psyche. I don't know a father in my circle of black males who has not taken his son or daughter over and said, this is the way it works. When you're driving and you get pulled over by the police, educating their children, not so much around the rules of the road in this, but on the rules of not getting your butt kicked. Yeah. Oh, so so the privilege of not having so, to do that doesn't exist among black and Hispanic and other families of color, do it. Can I ask what, uh, and Mike, you can cut me off if you have something else you want to go, but I'm curious because this, the- All right, um, there it yeah, is. yeah. Okay. you're done. <laughs> Still, but how? <laughs> No, go, no. The, uh, the, the idea of reform, I'm so curious how you guys approach that because the just the way it is kind of attitude is in a lot of ways like a, a foundational ideology, right? That is a shared ideology. And so we, in, it seems in most situations, we tend to um, address like the symptoms instead of the causes of things. Yes. We just kind of react to situations over and over and over again. Then we say, why hasn't it changed? Why isn't it changing? So yeah. I'm so curious how you guys approach reform and lasting change and changing the ideology or, or changing the conversation or however you guys look at it. I'm so curious as to what that looks like. Oh, yep. great question, Tim. And so let me compare and contrast policing to say a private corporation, right? In a private corporation, most really good private corporation, they know, understand, emphasize, talk about very specifically their culture in very clear terms and terminology, right? Yep, yep. Uh, this past week, I had my team, we had a group meeting. We talked about the culture of IAPR, our values, um, our work ethics, etc., and what we're trying to maintain. That doesn't necessarily happen in, in, in policing particularly around the broader culture. But the, the point I want to get to is what you are actually getting at is, man, that's really hard work, right? And so I have to empathize with some of my contemporaries out in the field who say, Nick, I'm sorry. 
I'm all about just shutting down all these police departments and starting all over again. And yeah. you know what? That's probably what it would take to totally change the culture of American policing in the fastest and the most expeditious way. But it's just not possible, right? I mean, if mm-hmm. if we um, if there was any way any way conceivable, right, to change the culture of American policing by shutting everything down and starting all over again, without there being mass chaos, havoc, death, mayhem, and all the things that would likely follow, without that, I'd, I'd be the first in line, right? And so I, because I realize how difficult it is to do it. So what we have to do that we believe is different from any other approach to reform is that we have decided that we would approach this much more comprehensively than has ever been done before. In the past, when reform has been claimed to be a part of the process, it's primarily focused on standards and training and on mm-hmm. accountability, Yep. right? Whenever a police officer screws yeah. up, oh, they need to be trained better, we need more rules, we need more policies, and that's gonna fix it. And then we can check a box and say, we are reformed, right? Well, that's what body cameras were supposed well, to yeah. do, right? The, the, you know, it, it plays to the idea of if we watch them, they're going to behave. No evidence of that. Right. <laughs> no evidence of yeah. that being uh, something uh, that reforms. And so what we are saying is that we have to broaden the scope of the change to get as close to transformational, that is just upheaval level change as you can get. So we create, we are constructing reform on top of five key pillars. We're gonna, first of all, make it from the level of community engagement and education. In other words, we want to engage the community first and foremost in a reform. That is because police serve, and this goes all the way back to the origins of policing globally. Police are intended to serve with the approbation, that is the permission of the, of the people. Mm. The, so when, when you know, police officers hear it all the time and they kind of mock it when citizens pull them over and say, I pay your salaries, you know, because we you know, hear that all the time. Right. Thing. Well, the truth is, it, it goes beyond paying your salary. It's like, I, you work for me. We work together as a community. You don't own policing, you're just the agent of that particular vocation that's doing it full time. And so our approach is... So policing's, so policing's bigger than just the officers. Policing is much bigger than just the officers. And anyone, again, that thinks that they can reform policing without making it a community issue, then it's never going to happen. Because community yeah, wellness, good. community safety, community change belongs in the hands of the community. So when we say community at IAPR, we mean civilians and police as one. There's not the police Mm -hmm. and the citizenry. There is the community, which is inclusive of police. So we need to start with the community in engagement around what reform uh, looks like, We need to look at the laws and policies that need to be changed in order to address this. 
the really glaring uh, issues uh, and more. Uh, on that level, tomorrow we are about to re we will be releasing our use of force policy, and so we're yeah. very happy to be putting out a white paper on use of force in, among American peace officers and to be introducing a, a revised um, model standard for use of force policies across the country. Um, and we know it's going to ruffle a few feathers because it's built upon the issue of necessity. And that's not in very many laws in the United States. Uh, you know, right after the uh, the murder of George Floyd, we looked at, we did in part with some of our legal partners, we did a comprehensive search on the status of use of force laws throughout the United States. And at that time, you know that there are seven states that were, and they've changed, not all of them. There were seven states that had absolutely no laws whatsoever on police use of force. So that essentially means it relied upon the department wow. policy. And in right. every state, there's departments that range from several hundred or several thousand down to two or three officers. You could have a department where some chief said, hey, you look like a fine strapping young person. Here's a gun and a badge. Go out there and do well. Not to mention, not yeah. even a requirement to be sent to academy. But no laws. And so, I mean, I say no laws on use of force, including deadly force. Yeah, um, yeah. So laws and policies, we have to look at those extensively. We have to look at a police accountability measures, all of the, the policies mm -hmm. in that. How is it that a police officer can beat up and brutalize somebody in one state and go across state lines and get a job in another state? Part of that yeah. is in the lack of transparency in what goes on in the police officer's background. Do you know if the president of the United States is subject to higher transparency the many police officers throughout the United States, in California, mm. for example, Peace Officer Bill yeah. of Rights uh, protects peace officers' yeah. records. That's right. I remember. Being, yep. Uh, exposed. Yep. You know, and I can fully appreciate Ooh. some of the protections that are, are given to police, but I, I'm absolutely, you know, feel that we need to be more transparent about how they perform and their behavioral issues. Yeah. Where do you find the most resistance to some of these ideas? Because I can imagine you can talk about community policing all day long because that's phrases out there. But there's so there's been such breach of trust in some areas. How do you even establish the the, the will for some communities to to see themselves as partner with law enforcement? And then and then secondly, do you do you find unions? Um, difficult to, to work with? Are they hesitant? Is it is it the administrations of, um, you know, like city councils that are the difficult folks to work with? Is it all the above? Uh, are there any places where you're surprised that there's resistance to reform also? I know that's like three questions in one. <laughs> well, it's, it's a good question because in, first of all, we are not finding great resistance. We have three pilot uh, areas that we're working in. I'm just going to call out the states because I don't want to call out the departments just yet until yeah. agreements to sign out, but looking um, up in uh, Virginia, in uh, Texas, and in Tennessee. Um, and these are programs using your principles, yeah, using your values. Our, our, our principles. And we're not finding 
resistance to where we are going because listen i fundamentally believe that the average police officer is not afraid of reform and i don't think that's being naive because i think when they hear that our intention to elevate policing listen it's not about defunding the police and if you go about reform our way it's going to cost more because they need more training the average length of training for um for police officer in the united states is 10 and a half weeks and i got to tell you mike your barber is required to have more training than that by three or four times <laughs> <laughs> yeah and much less they have much less authority <laughs> yes absolutely so, so yeah that's crazy yeah, you know most people are shocked at that you know and then you have some places that are great that have like you know six months training which is good but um yeah. 10 and a half weeks is just insufficient when the vast majority of that is focused on, you know, more on tactics and training and behaviors than it is on education. Yeah. You know, it's a training experience for the most part. I always say that yeah. training leads to rote mechanical behavior. Education leads yes. to thinking. We need more education in, in uh, our policing. Well, Nick, I was just shocked that I would be in the car with 24 year olds and we would be called to a domestic violence dispute. And, um, and, and these 24-year-olds would be arbitrating between a, a wife who's outside and bleeding, a husband who's got a kid inside, um, the children are screaming all over the place, the neighbors are standing around the house. How in the world is a 24-year-old you know, equipped in that scenario? to de-escalate i mean i i hardly saw any de-escalation training in my experience there um or or tactics i mean it was you know it was that was not the first move um officer safety was always the first concern and so <clears throat> i couldn't agree with you just on my very limited experience i was just shocked because these individuals are called to be therapists and marriage counselors and substitute fathers and mothers. I mean, it's just insane the expectation we have on some of these folks. It really is. And, you know, part of the reform process really is a deep, deep dive in what it is that police officers are asked to do. You know, when people say things like mm. defund the police, I'll tell you, I haven't met a police chief yet who, if, who would say, if defund the police means that you are coming into my department and you are taking out all of these things that have been piled on us throughout the years, homelessness, drug mm. abuse, um, home, you know, just uh, mental illness on and on, and you're going to take the funding that's attached to that out, then go for it. But there's one warning. There's no funding attached to it. All of these things have just been lumped onto us. So don't talk to me right. about defunding me and just taking away funding without taking away a demand for service response. And so what we are yeah. trying to accomplish is a much better balance. We would love to see so many things that have been piled onto policing services over the past three or four decades taken out and put into more appropriate community-based response and with you know a real attachment to 
to solutions so that we can decrease the amount of police intervention into spaces that are likely to escalate. Yeah, we want police to have great de-escalation training, but we would just prefer that they not be in these scenarios in the first place. I I, I'll give That's an example good. of that. I have a position That's so good. that I would like police officers at schools, but not in schools. Okay? Hmm. Here's the difference. I don't mind the issue of preservation of safety and things around the school, which could still be handled by private security, by the way. But police officers in school, in my opinion, is problematic. And I know I'm going to, for those who are hearing this, there's going to be all sorts of twisted faces over this. But listen, you look at the statistics attached to particularly black and brown children who the statistics, along with the introduction of cops in schools, the introduction of those children into the system also went up. Think about it logically. Wow. When the teachers would say, ah, you know, you know, Nicholas, Hector, I'm going to call your parents to come and deal with you because you're being a pain in the butt and it's, you know, it's not the right place for school. Well, now it's okay, fine. I'm call a school resource officer because I feel threatened by you and this is just ridiculous. And so the kids go, what? You know, next thing you know, the police are involved. The kids giving smack to the to the police officers and the whole thing gets escalated. Next thing you know, that kid is being introduced into the system. And I'm not exaggerating yeah. on that. Right. Yeah. And so. Well, I don't want teachers to bear the burden of being security in school. I also don't want schools to be a pathway into the judicial system for children. Right. And so we need That's so an example of what I'm saying in terms of reform that affects the community at large is we need to take a look at what we need to do to better secure our schools and reduce the threats to our children by not having police officers be disciplinarians also in the school systems as, as, as well. Yes, that, that makes total sense. So the vision is to take these five pillars that really build a different culture and to pilot these in various cities or municipalities around the country to show the better, the, the better fruit of that culture is that is that kind of the 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 vision at this point yes we are approaching this through what would be called a design thinking approach to change right first and foremost realizing that this is a heavy lift significant transformation process that has to occur and so the only way to do that is to test the theory of change to test the activities mm. that are attached to that theory of, of change and to have that constant monitoring and evaluation of the process, right? So you, you start, yep. in effect, experimentally, and then you expand, right? So you, you in effect, you model, you test, you improve, you replicate, you expand. And it's a cyclical uh, process that, that goes into that. Mm -hmm. but, Sounds like my work <laughs> slide, but yes, go ahead. But, you know, the, the problem with that for nonprofit that needs public funding and individual funding is to support that is 
and particularly with grant cycles and things like that, people have a mindset that's about three years long at most. Well, come on, what are you going to do in three years to change something that's the most entrenched culture in American society? Right, so we, we're going to do our best to try to get funding and support to allow us to continue this in, in an evidence base, a research base. That's why we are an institute. We are based in, uh, what, you know, that's why we're an institute. We're not a research institute, but that's why we call ourselves the Institute for American Policing Reform. It's because we base our work, and we're very active in the field. We're facilitators, we're consultants, we're change agents. But we base our work upon research, upon evidence, upon evaluation, upon change. That's going to take a long time. And so we yeah. need people to be with us and behind us for the long run. It's going to take us four years just to get through these three pilot sites. Now, granted, along the way, we will be mm -hmm. starting additional pilot sites based upon the learnings that we get from these first three uh, pilot sites. But man, this is a long haul piece of work because as Tim was pointing to in his yeah. question, he's, I heard you, Tim, brother, you were saying, Nick, man, this is a heavy lift you guys are taking on. <laughs> I heard you loud and clear. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, yeah. we are going to accomplish it if America really wants to get on board with it. Um, yeah. We we talked to some Canadian researchers about a year and a half ago who wrote a wonderful paper called Change or Be Changed. And they were talking about the difficulty of changing policing. Um, they, they pointed out in this wonderful, just really a fantastic uh, piece of work, they, in research that they did, that there is this strange dichotomy in that the police, or that the citizenry and the governments all want change in policing, but no one seems to have the will to do it right. No one seems to have the will or the patience or the investment that it's going to take to bring about the significant change. You know, so in a way, people could say, Nick, oh man, you're beating your head up against the wall on this. I would like to think not. Um, I've spent, yeah. you know, I took this on at a period in my life where I had been in the field of service for over 40 years, from being a soldier to being a, a, a peace officer to working in private sector, working in nonprofit sector, working as a consultant and developer around the world. This is not just a job for me, because I'll be real honest with you, I did not want to do it. This was a calling. And in many cases, a literal, besides a spiritual calling, where people were calling me saying, Nick, what are you going to do about this? And the words that were repetitive mm -hmm. From, I mean, from everywhere around the world was, I can't think of anybody more equipped to take this on to you. And I got to tell you, mm. it was almost scary, to be real honest, to be hearing yeah. the same words resonating across my network of friends and people around the world. It's, and, and if that's not a calling or a sign or an indication of a calling, I don't know what is. Totally. And I have just a oh, well, I just said it when I started within three weeks, I had two of the world's largest law firms and 
two or three dozen of the most fantastic people I've ever worked in saying, we're in, what do you need us to do? I love it. Um, and we couldn't, I mean, I think, I don't know if this is true for you, Tim, but when we watch a video like that and it keeps happening, um, I, I feel completely powerless to do anything more than lament and, and protest. And I don't, I just don't know what concrete steps look like. I don't know what to say when somebody says, oh, well, that, that beating wasn't racial because it was black men who beat a black man. And just real quick, how would you, how do you respond to that? Um, if, if somebody says that? that it was an entirely a racially motivated incident, entirely racially motivated. Yeah. I would not back down that from that up against any argument, right? It is, first of all, there's evidence that we have examined that shows that because of the culture of policing, all police officers, regardless of their racial background, are just as susceptible to the same type of racial bias and discrimination in their policing practices. Mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. listen, I, 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 I'm going to confess, when I saw this, one of the thoughts that came to mind for me was, I told you so, on that particular issue, that yes, yeah. it is entirely a racial discrimination-based action, and just because it was done by black police officers doesn't make it any less so. The demon in this behavior is the culture that foments that type of behavior and attitude. So is that part so of the you... training process that you guys are implementing is weeding it, like watching, I don't know how to word that, like the officers devaluing a body of color like if and i you can see that 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 is sewn into the system that people would devalue seeing you know their own faces how do you approach something like that in the is it in the training is it like how do you how do you address that culture great question so in both our introduction to the police departments and to the citizenry we do a culture training course. It's an all-day course, which quite frankly could be two days of examining culture and working with the department to do internal evaluation and understanding of what their culture is and really calling out the hard issues, the things that they see as their culture and the things that the citizens likely see as being a part of their culture, right? And to identify it to change it, right? Um, you know, yeah. it's like, you know, in AA, the first thing you do is, hello, my name is Nick, I'm an alcoholic, right? You know, let's identify this, right? Mm -hmm. As a reason why we're here yeah. so that we can work through this is it's, it's the way that, so we work to identify and understand what culture is so that we can begin to tear and rip away at what that, where those mm -hmm. dangerous elements of, of culture uh, exists. And so that, yeah. that indeed is the only way to get to uh, tearing down that which is uh, harmful. And then hopefully we can replicate that. You know, there is a scientific theory that all you need to do is change about 25 to 30% of a constituency. 
because our vision is standardized, trustworthy, human dignified policing in all American states and territories, right? And, yeah. and we yeah. cannot understate the importance of human dignified policing services. That's at the core mm. of it. I see a human being, regardless of any other characteristics or identity yeah. issues or social standing, I see a human being. And yeah. I'm going to have to respond to the circumstances brought before me with that human being, but I will never, ever forget that that is a human being. Listen, we know that in policing, there will come a time when it is absolutely necessary, keywords here, necessary for a police officer, a deputy sheriff, a federal agent to take a person's life. But because they have to make that awful decision, it doesn't mean that they value that life any less. What we want it to yeah. mean is that there was absolutely no other choice given the totality of the circumstances. That's why in yeah, the, the police gospel. department, after those type of shootings, they sent officers off to psych, for psych evaluations and, and counseling because it's a hard yeah. thing. Man. So one last question for you, Nick. Um, what do you guys need? Um, and you guys, meaning the Institute, how, how, can, how can people like us funnel this sort of angst, anger, um, towards something positive, uh, towards something concrete. So could you, I'd love, for, I'd love for you to just talk about what, what the needs are for the Institute and how can people get involved? Thanks for asking that, Mike, and the opportunity for me to speak into that. Fundamentally, sure. we need people to truly advocate the comprehensive police reform that we are forwarding. We want people to speak about us, understand us, to know us, to be advocates on our behalf to their community leaders, to their police departments, to their state, right? Because we can't go to 18,000 police departments, but we can go to 50 states, right? Yeah. So yeah, advocate yeah. for us, understand us, go to AmericanPolicingReform.org and learn about us, hear about us. We're still building out our website and getting information out there, but understand who we are. And hey, listen, remember, we are a nonprofit organization and we will take any donation that you give, but I'm speaking particularly to you not high net worth individuals out there listening. We need those six and seven figures that you can send to us to support this effort. This is a heavy lift. We have 50 states mm -hmm. that we have to deal with. We are a national organization. We need your support. You can go to our website and donate there, or you can get the address from the website, send checks, however it takes. We Listen, I am, I am not a fundraiser. <laughs> it was the reason why <laughs> I served for 20 some odd years through a private company, but did more than 33% of my work as pro bono is because I just didn't want to have to be a fundraiser. 
But the fact of the matter is yeah. you can't have a nonprofit unless the people believe in you, advocate for you, and financially support you. So that's what we need. We are a public yeah. interest organization. I had a very wealthy banker friend of mine who said, Nick, you made a huge mistake. You should have made this a for-profit company. You could have made a ton of money out of this. And, <laughs> you know, the fact of the matter is that may be true because we could have turned this into a consultancy and all these sort of things. But I did not believe that it would be credible because yeah. people mm. need to know we are doing this for the people, for the right reasons, for this country. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Thank you, man. I'll tell you what. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I mean, just thank you. Thank you. Um, everything our friend said about you is true, but he undersold you, actually. Um, we're so great. I'm just so grateful. Thank you. I'm so grateful because I've just felt this fundamental tension between um, the idea of policing and, and its necessity versus the way it's being done and recognizing there are institutional, structural, and cultural problems um and you'd have to be blind not to see that that's right and, and but then not knowing at all how to address right. that and so we're just so proud of you, thank you. for thank you mike he hearing whatever that calling looks like and and saying yes to it um so thanks nick we're so grateful um krista told us you're not on social media so we're not gonna we're not at all gonna give social media info, but we're going to direct everybody to your website. Again, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your thank time. You. And they can know a little bit about me personally, if they like at nicksensley.com. If you care. Nice. <laughs> nice. We care. All right, man. All right, thank thanks, you. Brothers. You take care. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this conversation. Voxology is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is supported by listeners just like yourself. If you'd like to partner with us, you can do so at patreon.com backslash Voxology. You can also join the community and hang out and chat with us on the socials facebook.com backslash voxology podcast and on instagram at voxology thank you thank you thank you for walking the long road with us